0: This week, Footprint Power Files Chapter 11 LATAM judge approves hotly contested DS Mallinckrodt judge denies request to stay $94 million distribution to GUX Cooper Standard hires restructuring advisors Hello and welcome to the re podcast, where we bring the latest developments in high-yield distress set in bankruptcy. I'm David Zubkis. For this week's deep dive, we feature a replay of Reorg's February webinar, where re first aid team at and Kirk and & Ellis' Joshua Susberg, in a conversation moderated by the American Bankruptcy Institute's Public Affairs Officer, John Hartkin, provide an overview of 2021's Chapter 11 filings, related data and trends, and industry-level insights across various sectors. We'd also like to remind listeners that on Wednesday, March 30th, REARG will be hosting a panel discussion on how companies facing mass tort liabilities, including Johnson & Johnson, have been using the Texas two-step maneuver to box litigation claims in a new asset light subsidiary and use the tools available in Chapter 11 to reduce their overall liability while continuing to operate normally outside of bankruptcy. Please reach out to a REARG representative if you're interested in registering. It's Friday, March 25th. Footprint Power, Salem Harbor Development, a Salem, Massachusetts-based 674-megawatt natural gas fire combined cycle electric generating facility and several affiliates filed Chapter 11 petitions on Wednesday in Delaware. The company's chapter 11 filing was precipitated by an adverse arbitral tribunal award and subsequent January 24th judgment entered by the New York State Supreme Court requiring the power project to pay its contractor, Iberdola Energy Projects, $237 million for wrongful termination of the engineering, procurement, and construction contract between the parties. The company's pre petition capital structure includes approximately $290 million of total outstanding principal amount under term loans and two undrawn outstanding letters of credit totaling $46.4 million issued collectively under the debtor's credit facility more than 80 percent of the holders of footprints pre secured credit facility and consenting equity parties have signed on to an rsa which figures a toggle structure between a standalone restructuring transaction or a sale transaction If the debtors elect to restructure under the rsa holders of secured credit facility claims would receive 100 percent of the equity of the reorganized debtors on account of their secured credit facility claims under a sale transaction scenario all or substantially all the debtors assets to be marketed and sold and the proceeds would be distributed to the debtors creditors in accordance with the absolute priority rule any exit facility loans would consist of new first lien term loans, which would be composed of converted prepetition secured loans in a like amount and new money financing in an amount to be agreed among the debtors and the required consenting lenders. Participation in new money financing would be voluntary for the prepetition lenders. Nearly two months after contested disclosure statement hearings kicked off in the LATAM Airlines Chapter 11 cases, the bankruptcy court on Tuesday entered an order approving the DS and clearing the way for solicitation of votes on their proposed plan. After holding a three-day hearing on the contested DS approval motion, Judge James Garrity Jr. said at a February 1st hearing that the court was prepared to approve the DS subject to a resolution of objections to the then-yet-to-be-heard backstop motion. The court heard argument on the backstop motion on February 10th and February 11th and issued a decision approving the backstop agreements on March 15th. The Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors appealed Judge Garrity's decision, granting the debtors motion to approve backstop fees and other consideration for the creditors and equity holders on Thursday. In approving the DS, the court outright overruled certain of the substantive objections and said others should be considered in connection with confirmation. Many of the objectors' concerns relate to the primary criticism of the plan, that Kramer, Levin, and Evercore represented parent unsecured claims group under three major equity holders backstopping the new capital raises and supporting the plan via an RSA were able to cut disproportionately good deals for themselves to the detriment of similarly situated unsecured creditors in violation of multiple principles of bankruptcy law. Chilean local bond trustee Banco del Estado de Chile, in a pleading filed on Wednesday with the court overseeing the LATAM Airlines Chilean cross border insolvency proceedings, argued that the plan cannot be confirmed because it provides higher recoveries to creditors in Class 5 that are members of the Kramer 11 Evercore Group, includes the Chilean bonds in Class 5, and places two claims against two separate debtors and one unimpaired Class 4 as a part of a gerrymandering scheme to avoid cram down, cram down provides, a rec- provides recoveries to the debtors' majority shareholders through distribution of convertible notes at a discount to Plan value and grants an impermissible backdoor release to the debtors, directors, and officers. In the Mallinckrodt Chapter 11 cases, Judge John Dorsey issued a brief bench ruling on Thursday denying the ACTHAR insurance claimants and Sanofi's motions to stay $94 million in initial cash distributions to Class 6 general and secure creditors while their appeals of the planning confirmation order are pending. The judge also denied the AICs and Sanofi's motions to certify their confirmation appeals for direct review by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. Ahead of the hearing, Randall Eisenberg of Alex Partners said in a declaration filed Tuesday that the one or two-year delay of Mallinckrodt's emergence from Chapter 11 will result in harms to creditors greater than. million, and $518 million, respectively. Eisenberg quantified what he called a limited set of potential harms that would flow from delaying the plan effective date by one or two years. He highlighted the opportunity costs that would flow from delays in creditors receiving cash distributions, as well as guaranteed unsecured note holders receiving new second lien take-back notes. An Anaheim group of holders of Cooper Standard's 30% senior secured notes due 2024 have selected Gibson Dunn as legal counsel and Evercore as financial advisor as the business continues to be affected by supply chain disruptions and inflation, according to sources. Cooper Standard's legal counsel historically is Simpson Thatcher, sources noted. Management said in its fourth quarter earnings call last month that it planned to tap markets later this year to refinance its term loan B due 2023. However, sources have said that a refi could present challenges as a hawkish Fed and geopolitical concerns of royalty markets top red stories this week included rear review of chapter 11 cases suggest death trap provisions successfully encourage objecting claim holders to vote in favor of chapter 11 plans death traps most prevalent for 2l equity classes morgan stanley suggests moby should have filed torture interference claims in italy rather than new york if nefarious allegations sufficiently intertwined with concordato DBMP certainty seek reconsideration of substantive consolidation ruling preserving viability of non debtor consolidation argue fraudulent transfer issues gatekeeper to all committee litigation. Potential looming RCF paydown adds more uncertainty to Cineworld's liquidity. ROW segment likely able to incur handle incremental loans. Now here's Kathy from Los Angeles with the week ahead. <laughs>
1: Hello, the forecast for next week is generally a lighter week of events. On Tuesday, March 29th, there will be a hearing in LADAM Airlines when Judge Jane Scarity is expected to assure a ruling on the UCC's objection to the intercompany claim of LADAM Finance against Poico Finance. On Wednesday, March 30th, in LTL management, Judge Michael Kaplan will hear several matters including whether to certify for direct appeal to the Third Circuit, his rulings denying dismissal of the case, and extending the preliminary injunction shielding non-debtors from talk-related litigation. At the same time, the official Meso Di Leoma talk claimants committee will see continued existence to prosecute its appeals of the orders in addition to pushing for the appointment of a second future claims representative. Also on Wednesday, March 30th, there will be a continued disclosure statement hearing in Zohar. The debtors will push for disclosure statement approval and scheduling a plan confirmation hearing in early May. The debtors received a favorable ruling today from Judge Karen Owens dismissing Lynn Tilton's equitable subordination suit against senior claims. Under the debtors proposed plan, senior creditors are slated to get all of the debtors value. Nordic Aviation will be in court on Thursday, March 31st, to get approval of their settlement agreement with Kirk Capital Parties, under which Kirk Aviation would become the sole shareholder of the party's joint venture, KN Operating Limited. As for earnings, they will be reported on Tuesday, March 29th, by Academy Sports and Outdoors, and Wednesday, March 30th, by Aircap and Vantage Drilling. That's it for me from Los Angeles on this Friday, March 25th. Fun fact on this date, the first color TV went on sale back in 1954, which was 68 years ago. It was a set made by RCA with a screen size of just 12 and a half inches and cost $1,000, which apparently after adjusting for inflation would be about $10,300 in today's money. Back to you in New York.
0: For this week's Deep dive, we feature a replay of REORG's February webinar where REORG's first aid team and Kirkland Ellis' Josh Sussberg, in a conversation moderated by the American Bankruptcy Institute's Public Affairs Officer John Harkin, provide an overview of 2021's Chapter 11 filings, related data and trends, and industry level insights across various sectors.
2: Good morning, everyone. My name is Robin Davis, and I'm the Manager of Member Engagement at the American Bankruptcy Institute. I'm pleased to welcome you to our First Day by REORG Year in Review. 2021 sets record for billion-dollar real estate filings sponsored by our friends at Rework. Before I introduce you to today's moderator, I'd like to address a couple of housekeeping matters. ABI is offering CLE for this webinar in several jurisdictions. If you need CLE, please be on the lookout for CLE codes being sent during the webinar in in the chat screen at various intervals during the presentation. Following the webinar, you will also receive a link to a survey both as you exit the webinar and in a follow-up email from ABI Live. Included at the end of the survey and in this follow-up email are details on how to claim your credit. Also, if you are in need of closed captioning for today's webinar, please click on the CC button on your Zoom navigation. A link to a copy of today's materials will be made available in the Zoom chat once the presentation begins And you'll also be able to find a link in the follow-up email you receive after the close of the webinar. During today's presentation, if you have questions for our panel, please type them in the question pane. We may not get to all the questions sent in, but we will certainly try. I am now pleased to introduce today's moderator, John Harkin. John is ABI's public affairs manager. John, I turn it over to you.
3: Thank you, Robin, and good morning, everyone. Again, I'm John Hartkin, ABI's Public Affairs Officer, and I'll serve as your moderator for today's session. I'm pleased to welcome you to our webinar, which is sponsored today, as Robin said, by our friends at Reorg. Our panel has many interesting points to cover, so let me introduce our speakers. Ian Howland is a Senior Legal Data Analyst at Reorg, covering the early stages of Chapter 11 restructurings for Reorg's first day product, and he oversees various Chapter Eleven databases. Ian joined Reorg in 2015 as a junior writer/slash researcher for the first day team. Next, we have Jessica Steinhagen, who is a deputy managing editor, where she manages coverage of in court and out of court restructurings and distress situations for first day and middle market their products. Prior to joining Reorg, she was an associate in the restructuring and bankruptcy group at Otter Board. Finally, we have Joshua Susker. He is a partner in Kirkland's restructuring and restructuring practice group. Among his many awards and recognitions for his practice work, Josh was recently recognized by the deal as the 2021 Better Counsel of the Year in the large cap category. He's also a Law 360 2021 MVP and a market leader in the 2021 IFLR 1000. He also has the distinction of being named to ABI's inaugural 40 under 40 class in 2017. Josh has many representations within the cases highlighted within Reorg's first day report and he will be providing insights on the trends and strategies within those figures. And just to set the stage, by now, everyone on this webinar is familiar that bankruptcies declined in 2021, especially within the corporate chapter 11 space. According to the administrative office of the U.S. courts, calendar year 2021 chapter 11s were down 42% from 2020. So as 2020 saw a wave of filings of companies resulting from the acute impact of the shutdowns or by businesses that were on the edge of filing before the pandemic, 2021 presented different factors for a pullback in filings. What were the overall figures and How did they compare to recent years? Uh, What industries saw the most decline in filings, which only saw moderate declines? What were some of the trends that emerged within the Chapter 11 cases filed in 2021 that practitioners should be aware of as we continue to move forward in 2022? This panel will answer these questions and more over the next hour or so. First, Let's start with the overall data that the First day Report found in their report, which you probably received in an email for this webinar, but is available via a link in the chat box of the webinar pane. Let's start with Ian. Uh, If you could start uh, with telling us about the overall scope of your research and what overall filing trends you and Jessica found.
1: Sure.
4: So our report covers um, a data set that encompasses all Chapter 11s involving more than 10 million in liabilities. Um, So we have analysis of the filing frequencies, um, splits across sectors, liability threshold, different sorts of case outcomes, and um, analysis of the uh, basis for the Chapter 11 filings. So in 2021, after having um, a record-breaking year kind of across the board in terms of Chapter 11 filing frequency, as John stated, there's been uh, a big pullback in 2021. Basically, across the board, every sector had a significant drop in filing frequency to levels that were Um, last found before the pandemic in much slower years, but 2021 dropped even further for those, with the only exception being the real estate sector, which matched its 2020 total, definitely elevated from prior years, and the utility sector, which had some issues with uh, winter storms in Texas, um, that played an impact and brought that over previous year's totals.
3: Thank you, Ian, and Jessica, any other overall uh, views on the chapter 11 filing space that you saw in your research?
5: Sure, so while well, the year overall was down, the year really took off um, in a negative direction in the second half of 2021. So the first half had did have a significant drop, but it even dropped off even further in the second half where there was not even one uh, retail filing in November or December at all. Um, and it just really dried up a lot. Um, so we saw that. Um, and then we, th- just in terms of the statistics, there were about 0.75 filings per day as, as, on a daily basis. And that compared to 1.32 per day in 2020. Um, and then um, in the years prior to that, it averaged about one case per day.
3: Okay, sure. And we're just looking at the hard data now. Uh, Obviously, the variables for that pullback were many. Um, I I recently read in the New York Times a piece about this being a period of great readjustment, uh, and that the reason for the filing spiking in 2020 uh, were many, but there are also many for the pullback. And so, Josh, from your perspective of a practitioner on the ground, what were some of those variables that shifted from 2020 to 2021?
6: Yeah, a good question. And I think it actually kind of bleeds into maybe what's to come in 22. You know, if you take a look back and you go to March of 2020 and literally the shutdown of the economy as we know it, what we saw was an acceleration. Of a lot of complications for businesses that had been previously troubled. You know, if you look back even further and you go to 2016 and 2015 and the couple of years that followed, there was a lot of activity in the retail and oil and gas sector. And when the economy shut down and all retail locations were closed, workforces were furloughed, and the price of oil dropped nearly to zero, right? You saw a lot of acceleration of companies that needed to get their balance sheets fixed immediately need to seek preservation in Chapter 11. Um, And what we ended up seeing, without actually knowing what was happening over the course of the next couple of months, was a pull forward of a whole lot of restructuring work that probably would have taken over the course of 21, 22, maybe even beyond. But because of the, the acute nature of that pandemic, many of those companies that were previously troubled or exploring various liability management initiatives needed to focus and restructure quickly. And so between March to November, uh, we saw a significant amount of activity, probably more activity than any of our practitioners had seen in the past 15 to 20 years. And then fast forward towards November and December, and there's an absolute correlation, you saw deal activity starting to pick up, and that's because of the unprecedented government assistance and the market environment with low interest rates, and the continuation by the government to provide stimulus and liquidity to the economy at a time that was so very important and necessary to get the economy back running again. And I even remember November and December of of 2020, many companies that probably needed to restructure were actually able to get a lifeline, whether through low interest rate access to liquidity or help from lenders um, who were showing the wherewithal and the ability to provide companies with longevity to see what would ultimately happen at the end of the pandemic that no one could predict. And so there was definitely a slowdown beginning towards December of 2020 from just a pure restructuring standpoint. And I think when you look at the numbers you know that Ian and Jessica pulled together and you see more activity in early 21 and then almost muted activity towards the end of 21, That's purely a function of the government assistance and everything that happened that created an unbelievable deal environment for everybody on the other side of the house, so to speak, and really a a lesser view towards restructuring and a need to actually attack a balance sheet on anything other than a financing and potentially kick the can opportunity. Um, And so, you know, as we look at 2021, it is, in fact, as Jessica mentioned, one of the slowest years on record. Um, I think probably surprising if you ask someone that question in March or April of 2020. But when you look back on it and you realize just the unprecedented, again, amount of assistance and the liquidity that was available, it's not at all surprising. And it really becomes a question of where do we go from here? And all these companies that were able to find liquidity and maybe even put Band-Aids on, right? when is there going to be a reckoning? We've obviously pushed the maturity wall out for many of these companies. But at some point, there will be a discussion for many of these companies about how they go and actually fix the balance sheet.
3: Yeah, thank you, Josh. And I I remember toward the end of 2020 uh, within ABI, the frequent press question we would get is, when will the wave hit? When will the wave hit? And I'm sure Ian, Jessica, you probably had similar inquiries Um, from your subscribers, from what you were seeing. But it is a matter of the activity in the restructuring space didn't stop. You saw filing still happening, albeit at not the same volume. And Josh, you certainly had your time filled throughout 2021, as did many practitioners. So why don't we advance to seeing, take a look at each industry. And what the data found within the various sectors that we cover, Jessica and Ian. And so, with that, let's start with uh, retail, or as in your report, um, it's it's labeled as consumer discretionary. Correct, Jessica. Yeah, that's right. It's just the way um the
5: codes for um, the different industries work. So under consumer discretionary, you've got retail and hotels and any kind of leisure activity, gyms would fall in there too.
3: Okay. And Ian, within this sector, that brick and mortar would have appeared to have been acutely impacted in 2020 with, as Josh said, the assistance and lifelines out there. What happened with the numbers within the consumer discretionary specs?
4: They started off a little bit active in the year, kind of a muted version of what we saw during uh, the summer and the spring and summer of 2020. Um, But then they just started to kind of drop off. And um, as we've noted, uh, government funding definitely played a huge role in that. Um, PPP funding allowed retailers to do the kind of business overhaul that they probably have needed to do for some time um, with a little extra support. Uh, for example, many retailers uh, filed with the goal of really revamping their e-commerce sales channels, trying to make more effort to get their sales done online if they can't do it through brick and mortar. Um, in addition, uh, you know, some pent-up demand over 2020 probably helps as well. Um, on the clothing side, you have businesses um, or people returning to offices needing um, office attire for the first time in some time. And yeah, I think they're just really able to take advantage of this space. Um, but just as some additional context, I mean, the as Josh was saying, um, retail has had somewhat of a turbulent last few years. Um, In our data set, the real boom for for these types of bankruptcies, especially the much larger mall-anchored retailers, occurred in 2017 and continued on in 2018, uh, particularly with these billion-dollar retail filings. Um, And then it stabilized a little bit in 2019, but still well above these pre-2017 levels. Um, several companies that filed in 2017 and 2018 filed again in 2019 and 2020. Um, and as for context with the numbers, in 2019, there were roughly 25 retail Chapter 11s, and um, this doubled in 2020. And then 2021, it went down to the lowest um, since they started in 2017 at just 14 cases for the entire year.
5: Yeah, I think that the companies that really pivoted well to the e-commerce did better in bankruptcy than the ones that didn't. Like Stock and Field is a you know outdoor goods brick and mortar retailer, and they liquidated because they had no, basically zero online presence. Um, and then some of the other ones that did pivot did better. Um, La had got a 100% Recovery Plan. Alex Nani also had a successful restructuring. Um, And then um, the collected group owns a bunch of different brands and they restructured because they said that their online presence was growing.
6: Yeah. uh, No, it's a a good point. I mean, the reality is restructuring a retailer is really hard, um, simply put. And if you look at the statistics, you know, I think it's close to 50 percent of retailers that file for Chapter 11 either end up selling assets or liquidating. And you know, in the pandemic, there was a massive amount of retail activity. Um, I had the privilege of working on the JCPenney restructuring. We worked on Neiman Marcus. And there were countless other retail companies, Taylor Brands, you know, just to name a few. And those companies were successful during the course of the pandemic um, for different reasons, but largely because there was so much uncertainty at the time. And there was an ability to convince third parties that the sum of the parts um, was greater than the pieces. And when you see what happened in the course of 21, the amount of retail activity, right? it seemed as if there were seven or eight companies filing each week in the retail sector. I think there were seven total retail companies that filed in 2021. And I think that's a function of consumer demand. Uh, People were out and people were buying goods. People were home and figuring out how to get things quickly. Um, and everybody you know, was trying to adapt to kind of the new age. And what we've always said is, technology happens to be a great disruptor, and technology really disrupted retail for the last five or six years. And I think what you're seeing is a lot of these companies catching up, you know, Jessica's point, and having an omni-channel presence, and really being able to adapt to the times and people's demand for product. Um, and that's been notwithstanding inflation, notwithstanding supply chain disruption, you know, notwithstanding labor shortages. And so, you know, the retail activity, I think, has been much less um, because of all those factors and whether or not that's something to be seen in 2022 and beyond is is to be determined.
5: Yes, and Josh, actually
3: looking at some of the figures that have been coming out, you, you mentioned within those variables, consumer demand and uh, it looks as though January was quite a strong retail uh, uh, sales month as well, and uh, we'll see how that plays out throughout the year. But yes, and also Jessica, Ian, there were some other notable air, uh, uh, lifelines that were extended in 2021. I believe you had mentioned in your report a couple of celebrities uh, went back to be able to purchase their own brands uh, out of restructuring. Correct.
5: Yeah, Jessica Simpson bought back her brand. Um, You know, everything from the (laughs) 90s is popular again. And um, same with uh, Puff Daddy uh, bought his uh, brand back. So yeah, they've, I guess, find a way to uh, make those successful again, or they're trying to, at least.
3: Yes, we'll see if if that trend continues with celebrity lifelines. But uh, let's see, and moving from consumer discretionary Uh, To restaurants, uh, that was uh, a space that there was so much uncertainty extending from 2020 to 2021. But as Josh just said, businesses were starting to figure it out. What were the filing numbers like in the restaurant space, Ian or Jessica?
4: They dropped significantly. Um, Restaurant industry has been one, especially restaurant chain operators, which is mostly what we cover due to our $10 million in liability threshold. They kind of jumped up in 2016 and just stayed at this level of about 10 chains per year uh, with a little blip in 2018, which was before 2021, the slowest year for bankruptcies we covered. In 2020, um, it just kind of went wild when going from an average of about 10 to almost tripling that throughout the year. And then in 2021, it's one of the sharpest drops that we've had in those types of filings, similar to the retail industry, restaurants have been able to kind of, figure out what works and figure out what hasn't. Um, many restaurants kind of re- reutilizing their space to get rid of the seats for customers and just enlarge their kitchen so they can make more and serve more through either delivery or takeout. Um, but the same advantages, especially from government support that the retailers had um, definitely impacted the, the restaurant end of brick and mortar as well.
5: Yeah, I think we saw in some earnings recently, like the Cheesecake Factory and Denny's, they showed a very large increase in um, same, source, same store sales like going up recently um, because of all the restrictions being lifted. Um, but Denny's also noted that the labor availability was gonna potentially hinder them because they can't get enough workers to staff their restaurants to fulfill all the need.
3: Sure. and. Josh, I mean, it's it's a matter of those lifelines, the adjustments, uh, even consumer behavior of toward the end of the year. I saw a lot more people in restaurants. I'm sure we all did in our various markets uh, with the ebb and flow of health precautions. Uh, but from the restructuring standpoint, did you see more of those lifelines within the restaurant space than some of the other? industries.
6: Yeah, I mean I listen, I think anything consumer facing, right, had to deal with first and foremost March through December of 2020, right, an inability to actually be open and then navigate restrictive guidelines that were different in every single jurisdiction. So if you're a multi-state retail company or a multi-state franchise, right, you are having an internal team try to figure out each and every single day when can I open? How many people am I permitted to have in a restaurant or a retail store at a time? And what are the protocols that we need to put in place to not only be safe to the consumer, but also to the workforce and the employees? And many of these companies have furloughed their entire workforce. So bringing some back rather than the entire workforce was a challenge. You know, as we saw the vaccines start implementing themselves throughout the world and the restrictions start loosening, I think it was only a matter of time before restaurants and retail stores were able to help kind of figure out what they could do jurisdiction by jurisdiction. And as a result, I think you saw much more of an appetite, again, in a low interest rate environment to be able to help these companies or self-help through lender support and an ability to try to navigate what was completely uncertain, but then again was pent up demand because so many people hadn't left their home for six, seven, eight months. Um, And so it's not surprising in hindsight, nothing is, I guess, in hindsight, to look back and see the numbers when it was so dramatic in 2020 and everything was literally shut down to an effective reopening in 2021 and a lot of people wanting to get out. And whether it's pick up food or be able to eat outside at a restaurant, you you saw a lot of these companies be able to adapt and navigate all the circumstances that were so perplexing in 2020. Um, So I think it's you know, I think it's interesting to see when you look back on it, but not surprised.
3: Mm-hmm. It, it seems very logical, almost, with the establishment of better footing. Uh, but as we opened with uh, the fact that there are many variables that led to the pullback, uh, I just wanted to see your three uh, opinions within this restaurant space. Uh, there are other issues at play, of course, with Interest rates, that of course is across business financings, but the restaurant industry, you mentioned labor, but also now inflation with cost of goods. are these some variables that practitioners should be acutely aware of? Are there any others as as we move forward into the year?
6: Yeah, I think labor shortages um, and inflation create a lot of pent-up pressure on various businesses, most especially, the restaurant space. Whether or not that actually leads to a cascade of restructuring and activity, I think remains to be seen. But, you know, I do understand and I looked at, and Jessica mentioned, you know, the Denny's report, right? All these companies are attempting to get back to normal. And as the economy stabilizes even more and people are back out there at restaurants, in retail space, doing everything that they used to be able to do, the labor shortage issue is real. Um, and an inability to service clientele is going to affect the bottom line. And it's frankly going to affect how lenders and creditors interact with these businesses. And so that is something that I think, as we look beyond you know, 2022 and 2023 and go forward, that's something that needs to be viewed, needs to pay attention to, uh, because that combined with inflation and rising interest costs is going to create pressure. Again, whether or not that ultimately puts a damper on a company's ability to operate as a going concern remains to be seen. Uh, but I think it's important data that we need to pay attention to.
3: Yes. And of course, we're all sensitive to the fact that, uh, of course, your your report in its its cap there is 10 million. Um, and the restaurant space, of course, there are a lot of owners, operators underneath that cap, which local mom and pop businesses may be going through distress. But You know, there are opportunities uh, within the restructuring space. I know there are a lot of creative folks that can help those mom and pop businesses out there. But um, for the 10 million and above, yes, we will see how those variables play out. But the next uh, segment that I wanted to move on to is one that is termed uh, a simple term of healthcare, but it's a very broad umbrella when when you say Jessica and take us through what you're looking at when you're looking at the healthcare segment
5: sure so for healthcare you know it covers anything from the continuing care retirement communities which had a big jump um to hospitals to Um, biopharmaceutical companies, those had a huge um, uptick in 2019. We haven't seen any of those um, over the past year or two. Um, And so we've seen very, very few hospitals or other sort of service providers for the medical industry in 21. The only thing that did increase was the senior living centers. And that was for a variety of reasons. Um, One of their census numbers were affected. The, they also had to spend a lot more um, to for protective equipment for the employees at the places, and maybe they also provided it for the residents. Um, and so those were very big um, in 2021. Um, and it seems like a, such a big jump as well, because in 2020, those filings were down. So... You went hot pretty high as you can see on the chart that Ian just put up. Um you know in twenty well now it's gone but in 2019 they were you know pretty high and then 2020 they decreased and then you could see the senior living facilities went up and then as you can also see on the chart the general hospitals and other sort of facilities or operators were way down in 2021. There are almost no filings of those
3: yes and this Chart, it's it's very helpful in the report identified uh, some of the inner workings of those filings. But uh, I just wanted to see when it came to continuing care providers, uh, if you saw anything within your data of the filings, or Josh, if you'd like to chime in, is this a business model that is also undergoing a great period of re- readjustment?
6: Well, I, I guess I'd say from my perspective um, and interested in, in Ian and Jessica from their research, you know, I think healthcare is something um, from a restructuring practitioner standpoint to play close attention to. Um, I think the pandemic, as far as healthcare is concerned, will have lasting effects on the overall industry and each of the sectors that have been identified. Um, I think we're at a point now where government subsidy is ending. Right, Medicare advances that were made to help bridge some of these facilities and hospitals through the worst of times are coming due. Um, and there are pretty significant capital structures throughout the industry and dependent upon what ultimately happens from elective care you know, and surgery, um, from senior living facilities where I know and I've read that there are a lot of people that are looking for home-based alternatives as opposed to senior care. I think this is something that we need to pay close attention to as far as restructuring. um, And I wouldn't necessarily say opportunities, but just understanding the system at large, um, because there will be pretty significant pressure throughout on each of the various variables and alternatives that are available, um, whether it's the hospital-based or senior living centers. And so this is something, and I think we'll get to this later on in the program, you know, what's to come and prognostications as to where there's activity, I think healthcare is certainly a space where people are focused.
3: Sure, and Jessica or Ian, would you be able to take us through, where, was there anything within your research showing uh, facilities uh, based off of region? Uh, were they concentrate in a certain area of the country? Uh, just want to, to get your take from the report on that.
4: They previously have been, but um, not to a significant extent in 2021. Um, I mean, it could just be because, you know, it wasn't the greatest sample size. Um, There weren't that many of them aside from the senior care ones, which um, were, I believe, pretty diverse in terms of geography. Um, I think the healthcare situation in general is very interesting. Um, In 2016, 2017s 2017 is when we first started to get a lot of these like rural hospitals. So not necessarily uh, a particular geography, but um, that type of area. Um, rural hospitals not being able to compete with the economies of scale of these larger networks. Um, also difficulties attracting um, uh, doctors because they wanna make more money in metropolitan areas where they can but in 20 from 2017 to 2018 and then 2018 to 2019, healthcare filings increased significantly, both in the senior care center side as well as the general hospital side. And 2019 is where we started to get a lot of uh, pharmaceutical filings as well. So into 2020, um, you know, everything just kind of dialed back. But all of these issues that these industries are dealing with are still very much there. And I think one of the others that could potentially be impactful is labor shortages, not necessarily in terms of um, there not being enough people, but um, maybe this move away of a lot of people thinking that healthcare isn't the most uh, beneficial industry for them to work in in a pandemic environment. So I think those could be issues as well.
6: And, and there are also government pressures. Um, I think people are following, you know, all the legislation out there on surprise billing, um, and how that's affecting so many different businesses. And I know that's something that Reorg covers uh, at length, uh, consistently. And I think that's something to pay attention to. That's creating added pressure to the overall industry and how it impacts, you know, day-to-day operations. So more to come on the healthcare space.
4: 2021, um, a lot of the healthcare filers did cite labor costs. Um, Some of that was from the kind of constrained labor supply angle, but it was also separately because of all these added costs for hazard pay. Um, A lot of the costs had to do with just maintaining all of these different guidelines and rules about protecting the employees and protecting the patients and you know, not just being able to serve food to um, a resident in the same way you would be able to before. So, yeah, there's 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 lots of angles that can, that can have uh, that can lead us to expect an impact in in the coming months.
3: Yes. Well, Josh, Ian, thank you for bridging uh, some of the items there that are factors to watch within this industry, which of course, healthcare, with a very large umbrella we will make sure that is is starred uh, for industries to watch. But moving on, also, this next uh, industry, of course, has uh, uh, quite a wide umbrella, uh, real estate. Uh, Jessica, take us through what uh, you're looking at when it comes to the real estate space.
5: Sure. So for real estate, we cover the usual uh, cases that are above $10 but we also cover single asset real estate cases just because... um, we started doing that a couple of years ago and you get to see a much wider range of cases. So obviously the highest percentage of the cases for real estate we saw were the single asset real estate, just because of the volume of them. There are so many, um, but the larger real estate cases we started seeing towards the end of 2020 and the largest ones we've ever seen at first day came like the end of 2020 into 2021. Um, and All the $7 billion real estate cases we've seen filed from November 2020 to December 2021. So they all were in in a very short period. Um, And before that, the real estate cases had been much smaller. Um, And then in terms of where these cases are coming from, we generally find that they come from New York, Texas, California, and Florida. Those are the greatest frequency filers, which districts, but then for the single asset real estates, those typically come from Brooklyn and Manhattan. And over the past year or so, we've seen a very large increase in Brooklyn properties. So I guess just the popularity of people living there and just more real estate being uh, transferred hand to hand. So we've seen that like there was all year holdings was a very large Brooklyn developer that filed this year. And then the Williamsburg hotel, owner also filed, so we've seen that. Um, and then some of the single asset real estates, most of them are pretty boring, but some of them, we see some interesting um, properties come on. So single family homes, there was one in Bel Air for um, you know, for over a $1 million, $100 million, and they listed in assets and liabilities, um, and all of those very large houses were generally come from the Los Angeles area. That's where those come from. Um, that's sort of the gamut of the real estate. We've seen a lot of the REITs were filing, you know, towards the end of 2020. And then in 21, we had the um, the hotels start to file. The, the Eagle Hospitality was, you know, a very large hotel um, case that we saw. And that also stemmed from all the same factors we've spoken about from the, you know, the drop in people going out and traveling.
3: Interesting. And was there anything, obviously, the various phases of the pandemic here have certain folks going back into the office, others not. Did you see anything in the office space category or um, was that a little bit muted through financing and other lifelines?
5: Well, the PWM property management that was the biggest one, and they have those huge office towers in New York and Chicago. Um, and that was one of the billion dollar filers we saw. Um, so we saw that there was also Notel, which is a flex workspace provider. Like, um, I'm losing the name of the um, we work, yeah, yeah, we work. <laughs> um, so it's sort of a fake we work. Um, so yeah, Notel they ended up filing during really the big problems in the pandemic, but they sold their their assets to um, an affiliate of Newmark Group during the case. So they sort of entered the case during the harsh part of the pandemic and seemed to have come out okay in the end. Um, so we've seen that with the office space. And I don't think that the office space has really recovered yet, um, but we'll see what comes with that as time goes on, if people start going back to the office more.
6: Yeah, and I would, I would mention, um Because it's near and dear to my heart, Uh, you know Washington Prime, which was a big public REIT, uh, as well as CBL. Um, You know these are two companies that had portfolios of malls, uh, both closed and open air. I don't think anyone's surprised uh, that mall owners were dealing with large balance sheets and lots of issues that we've all talked about during the course of the pandemic that have affected their business um, both acutely and more long term. Uh, but I think both companies successfully restructured in Chapter 11 and were able to delever significantly, um, putting them in a position to start capitalizing on you know, the return of the consumer and an ability to loosen the restrictions and get people back into stores and in the malls. Um, and then, you know, John, as far as office space is concerned, I, I particularly think that that is a very interesting question, um, because as we're all sitting here I actually happen to be in the office, but I know I'm looking at Ian and Jessica and John. You've got the fancy background, so no one knows where you are. But the reality is no one's really figured out what the return to work is ultimately going to be. There's obviously a comfort level from a lot of people about working from home, and there's a certain crutch to it at this point as we're moving on to two years. Uh, There's certainly going to be pressure on office space, as people try to think about and reconfigure the workspace and how it is we all work. Um, so whether or not there's going to be a reckoning in the near term, I think that's something that's a longer term focus that people are going to have to pay attention to, because the way we work is changing. And I think we've demonstrated over the course of two years, for better or for worse, you know, technology, while it may be a great disruptor, you know, is also an unbelievable thing and has allowed us to continue moving forward and to allow businesses to restructure during the course of the pandemic when the courts were closed, stores were closed, and we were all at home, but business needed to continue. And I think, you know, we've all demonstrated an ability to adapt and really rally uh, to get results. And the question will be, what does that mean go forward and how does that change the way we live?
3: Yes, that's an excellent point of the adaptation of the workforce. And even within the real estate uh, arena, even footprints, uh, we've all read reports about how those have adjusted uh, within the retail space. I I was reading about the trend of med tail where uh, large footprints were transitioning from a retail space to a healthcare space within a mall. Um, And so yes, as to whether that will continue is, is definitely a question. And so on from real estate here, energy. Um, Take us through, Jessica, Ian, uh, what do you mean by energy? We're we're not talking utilities. That appears later on in the report, correct?
4: Yep, that's right. Um, Hold on one sec. There we go. Okay. Sorry. Um, so yeah, so, uh, realist or energy had, um, a very calm year in terms of, uh, chapter 11 activity, especially relative to prior years. I think in general, um, since we started collecting this data set, we sort of expect the consumer discretionary and energy sectors to account for, um, a wide, um, a really large amount of chapter 11 filings often with, One of them being at least 20% of the overall number of um, Chapter 11 filings, Um, either one, if not both of them reaching that level. Energy had a particularly rough year in 2016, stemming from the collapse in oil and gas prices that started in 2014. Um, That was definitely, at the time, the uh, the biggest boom for that, especially when it comes to energy companies with over a billion dollars in debt. They continued into 2017, uh, definitely at a, a little bit slower rate than 2016. And then 2018 started to fall even further, which continued into parts of 2019 until another big wave of energy uh, chapter 11's happened. So like, like retail and like consumer discretionary in general, leading into the pandemic, um, it was in a, fair, a fairly uh volatile state. So when all of these factors that have contributed to oil and gas pr- gas prices um, falling in general um, coincided with the significant reduction in demand due to the pandemic, um, we reached higher levels for oil and gas filings than we have at any other point during our data set. And then in 2021, um, it was very quiet the entire time. I mean, we had several oil and gas filings, some small and some large, and they attribute the bankruptcy to the same things that com- that oil companies have been attributing to them in the past. We're just seeing it affect a much smaller amount of players at this point.
3: And you mentioned uh, they were mentioning the uh, factors that also uh, happened in the past. The report highlighted the number of debtors uh, we're grappling with rejection of local gathering agreements. Is that one of the items that you had uh, you had found
4: uh, to be continuing to carry forward? Yeah, that was definitely cited um, in some of the first day briefings of these companies.
5: Yeah, we saw that with the Rockdale-Marcellus and the Nine Point cases. Um, they both ended up resolving their issues um, with. Nine points um, resolving it. Full Calibre was there. I mean, uh, midstream service provider, and that those issues really dominated the case. But then they. Um ended up resolving that through after the sale was done. So um, there was a lot of appeals relating to the sale, but eventually that got resolved. Um, And then in um, Rockdale-Marcellus, they also filed to reject in midstream agreement. That was with a different provider. Um, That one is UGI. Um, That case went a little bit smoother, though, because they really just resolved that through um, a consensual agreement, and that was also resolved through a sale. So it'll be interesting to see whether this gives the EMP companies a little bit more leverage in negotiating these agreements now because of these cases where they were resolved through a sale. So it just provides another avenue to maybe um, deal with these issues. And then another case we had, which was also sort of a mid-market company, Tabula Rasa, they had, they also filed with the same issues and that case is still ongoing. So I don't know how that's going to end, but they'd said that they wanted to resolve that. Um, I think they said they wanted to resolve that before the sale. So they were trying to um, front load that Renegotiation before the case really got underway, so we'll see how that one plays out too.
3: Yes, and Josh, I mean this energy MP is a, a gigantic uh, ecosystem of an industry. Hearing some of those factors and strategies what are what are your uh, perspectives of what's going on in that practice?
6: Yeah, I, I listen, I think you look at these numbers that are on the screen, um, you know, and I'm thinking back to what I was doing in 2015 and 16 and beyond, um, there was a complete assault on the commodity. uh, And it led to a massive amount of activity in the space, both in court and out of court. And as you look at the course of the last five or six years, you know, I think what you've seen is the development of a lot of, for lack of a better word, technology in these cases. Um, There are so many smart practitioners that are digging into the underlying land agreements, the gathering agreements, whether or not these covenants run with the land, and all of these issues have been litigated and really provide for opportunity you know, to create an environment in which at the end of the day, our job is to get people to the right result and frankly, to try to settle on a consensual basis. And over the course of this period of time, I, I think there's been a lot of back and forth on both sides so that there's created a friction and an ability to try to drive to the right result, whether it's on the company side or the creditor side. And so I think the experience that everyone has had um, with the commodity downturn and the ability to focus on the various issues at play in these cases uh, has created a data bank, if you will, that will allow people to continue to try to facilitate consensual restructurings in an environment, as you see at the end of Q4, that has really dropped off precipitously largely because of the increase in the commodity, which again went you know, to zero in March of 2020 and is hovering around $100 now. Um, but that's not to say you know, commodities go up and commodities go down and restructuring activity goes up and restructuring activity goes down. So I think that you know, all the learnings that we've had over the course of the last several years um, will be important in developing underlying theses and resolutions in the cases go forward, depending on the circumstances and the need for these companies
3: to restructure. Excellent, yes. And speaking about the need for restructure, moving to the hotel industry. uh, Now, Ian and Jessica, you found in your report that filings rose in 2021 compared to previous years, even while there was uh, that pent up demand as we brought up in. Uh, other industry overviews. Uh, What did you see within your research as to uh, those cases increasing in 2021?
5: Well, there was just, I think, a land recovery for the hotels as compared to the retail and the restaurants, um, because, I mean, you go out to your local restaurant more easily than you're gonna start to hop on a plane and travel, so I think that was the factor there, the main factor. Um, then there was, we spoke about some REITs before, then the Hospitality Investors Trust was a large hotel REIT, um, and they, they point blank just based, uh, blamed their filing on the pandemic and the government shutdowns. Um, and then th- we also had some other sort of big hotels that um, had their own unique issues with their um, hotel brands. There was the Wardman Hotel in Washington, D.C., and the Fairmont San Jose in Silicon Valley, and they also filed because of the pandemic, but also based on these underlying issues with their hotel operators. Um, and then there was a small case out of Las Vegas called Tix Corp, and they just provide, you know, events and that kind of services for events in Las Vegas. And they said that every single hotel on the Strip had closed, you know, for the government shutdown. So that just was underlying all these cases that nobody was traveling or using hotels. Um, So, you know, as people start to travel a bit more, these issues should lessen. But, you know, I think there's a decline in business travel. So that may offset some of those gains as we go forward.
3: Would you say it was a carry forward of that shutdown in 2020 that saw the filings increase in 21 then?
5: Yeah, I think so. And I believe they all came in the first half of the year, like most of the filings in 2021. So I think it was just the lag.
4: Yeah, they they started. So basically as um, the other brick and mortar like retail and restaurants started to decrease in filing frequency, that's around when hotels started to increase in filing frequency, particularly in the first half of 2021. And then they um, seemed to be in a better situation during the second half as a lot of those hotel filings dropped. In terms of timing and everything, you know, pent up demand and you, now people can shop more easily and can go inside stores and restaurants that has a, a quicker quicker return. Whereas hospitality and tourism, I guess tourism in particular, remained down for quite some time, definitely on the international front of people from outside the United States coming to the United States, but also in a more micro level. There's also, um, Uh, these differences, sorry, um, differences in timing, like uh, different uh, areas, you know, um, loosening restrictions on things like hotels, and then, you know, spikes that were happening, especially in the first half of 2021, where certain areas, certain regions would have these big spikes, and then they would have to then change. So there were a lot of these kind of like, just just less stability in the ability to run the business in the way that would be most effective.
3: Sure, sure. And Josh, I, I take it um, you have seen better footing in this in this space in the restructuring uh, practice.
6: Yeah, undoubtedly. Um, and I think you know it. It really goes to kind of the underlying thesis for real estate more broadly, um, because you know where there's stress in that market, it inevitably touches upon uh, the hotel space, which, of course, is consumer-facing, and uh, people's preferences are likely changing. So I I certainly think that's one place to watch, and there will be activity to come. And many of those companies have pretty complicated capital structures, whether it's through CMBS indebtedness or otherwise, and it's securitized. So uh, certainly a a space to keep an eye on.
3: Sure. Sure. And now the other industries within the report, uh, airlines, utilities, consumer staples, I I feel like so many of the variables that we've been bringing up uh, within the filings that were seen in 2021 are very much at play within these industries. I believe the report showed that with airlines, there wasn't much filing activity within domestic carriers. Uh, You had government stimulus, you had folks traveling again. Uh, was there a brief point anybody wanted to mention on airlines within 21 activity or.
5: Yeah, there were hardly any domestic airlines at all in 20. Uh- in 2020, we had um, the Raven Air, which is an Alaskan airline. And in that case, throughout the hearings and everything, they kept talking about what government stimulus they were going to get. So it was very clear that that was propping them up, even throughout the bankruptcy. Um, so there's really not much to say on the airline since there just weren't any filings, except from some of the Latin American carriers. Those did file um, recently, but those had their own issues.
3: Sure. And utilities, that that was really. Uh, brought to the fore by the storms uh, in Texas, and those proceedings are still ongoing. But outside of the acts of Mother Nature, um, was there anything else in that space that uh, you saw?
4: No, not really. Um, It was an interesting year for the utility sector, very much attributable to basically one thing. It's a sector that's only averaged usually around five to six filings per year, Um, and this was something where it increased 57%. So while a big relative increase in terms of its impact on the overall chapter 11 filing frequency, it was pretty pretty minimal.
3: Yeah, so utilities, you could just pretty much sum it up as you can plan a pretty picnic, but you can't predict the weather. Yeah. Exactly. Event-driven. Yes, yes, event-driven. And consumer staples, of course, we've mentioned supply, labor inflation. um, Are there any other constraints within this sector that folks should know about either happening at the tail end of 21 or carrying forward into 22?
6: No, I I think, you know, everybody's got to be pretty focused on just the transportation of goods um, and, you know, generally things moving in commerce and an inability to actually get inventory on shelves. Uh, That's creating a whole host of problems and pressures. We started seeing that towards the end of the year. Um, Companies have reported that they're muddling through and they're dealing with it. But if that persists and continues, that creates a whole host of challenges that are unknown and potentially variables that people haven't necessarily calculated in their underlying thesis to, to drive to results and revenues that could put pressure on capital structures.
3: Excellent. Well, I think that uh, concludes really the industry rundown um, portion of giving a good overview of the report. Now I'd like to take this time we have left, uh, and I don't have a snappy crystal ball uh, graphic that I can just put in the middle of all of us, but I'd like to just uh hand the mic, so to speak, to each one of you to provide your 2022 predictions for the remainder of the year, uh, your concerns and any closing thoughts you'd like uh, the uh, attendees to be aware of going into the year. So we'll just go, uh, we'll start with Jessica in and then uh, let Josh close us out. So go ahead, Jessica.
5: Okay, I'm not good at predictions, but I would say um, I think, uh, well, there's only room to go up. So presumably things will go up at least a little bit this year, but who knows? Um, It seems like healthcare, like we've discussed, will probably be a big issue going forward um, with the reimbursement rates and the surprise billings and all of that going on, and also just the long-term effects of COVID. Um, People's health might be also impaired a bit, and they may be needing some more medical services. Um, So we'll see how that plays out with healthcare. Um, I think in terms of like prepacks or liquidations or reorganizations, I think people are starting to wanna do more prepacks, you know, just to lessen the cost of chapter 11 and try to get in and get out as quickly as possible. So likely to see more prepacks, even though we did see a drop off in those in 2021, though I guess the sample set is a bit skewed. So it's hard to tell if that was an accurate depiction of what's going on in the market. Um, and then also with the third-party releases, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and if more companies or less companies file because of that, presumably less if they're trying to make use of that. We've um, seen that with the Texas two-step as well, people trying to sort of backdoor in the third-party releases that way by getting the benefit of you know, some lessening their liabilities without actually having to go through the bankruptcy process for some of the um, liabilities that are kept, you know, for the assets that are kept in the main company. So those are some of the things I see going forward.
3: Yes. And now, now Ian, any uh, points you'd like to build on there?
4: I think just there's a lot of general senses of uncertainty with a lot of things. I mean, you have these uh, labor shortages Um, you also have a subset of labor shortages that seem to be a result of maybe less interest in doing certain types of jobs, given how these jobs have been for people during the pandemic over this stretch. Um, Is that enough to offset, or is the pent up demand enough to offset those issues? Um, I think there's just a lot of uncertainty on how things will unfold. Um, you know, will there be new variants that end up you know causing a, a month or several months of more complications? I think um the healthcare industry is one in particular where there's just a lot um, that we don't know yet, but a lot of different developments that could kind of result in in a lot of trouble, especially on the labor end, especially on the um, cost structure end and I think there's also still like some, some positive signs, like uh, a lot of people are dining and going out again. I also still think there's a lot of people who have not started to do that yet, who may be getting to that point, um, which could be very beneficial. But yeah, I think just about anything can happen um, in this year for bankruptcies. Um, Last year was definitely um, very surprising um, for a lot of us. I mean, for me, at least Um, so yeah. I, well, as the government's support um, ends, if it does anytime soon, um, it could be it could be an interesting year and a very active one. And Josh, where
3: where do you see your practice taking you in terms of the activity? Um,
6: well, you know, I, I guess I'll end on this. I know we're running a, a little bit uh, over here, but, you know, I think we saw in 2021, um, you know, a real assault on on Chapter 11 whether it's coming out of uh, the government or third-party opponents. Um, You know, questions as to venue and the need for reform, questions as to third-party releases and their use and whether or not they're appropriate with circuit splits um, all across the country, questions around the appropriateness of prepackaged plans, questions around equitable mootness, which gives people the benefit of being able to actually get the the bargain that was negotiated for and affected. And I think all those storylines are incredibly important to the overall practice um, and have been really at the forefront of a lot of discussion and a lot of suggestions around legislation. Jessica also mentioned the Texas Two-Step, which in and of itself brings to bear, you know, not only the appropriateness of utilizing Chapter 11 for various MATS tort liabilities. It's always been available and utilized for asbestos, but now you're seeing opioid, talc liabilities, the Boy Scouts case. I think all those themes are gonna continue to play out. Um, I think the dialogue is a good one um, and we should have it, but I think it's important that people keep in mind just how important of a tool chapter 11 can be to resolving uh, a massive amount of liabilities for the betterment of everybody involved. And you know, keep in mind, you still need to get consensus in order to confirm a chapter 11 plan. So people's voices aren't necessarily muted, um, but they're all driven to one form uh, to try to resolve issues. And I think it's gonna be important uh, to keep that in mind because this is gonna continue to be a theme that gets discussed and debated. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out in 2022 and
3: beyond. Excellent, thank you, Josh. And- Uh, We'll we'll, uh, conclude. I understand that there are a couple of questions, Jessica and Ian, that uh, you both polled your um, subscribers, but we also have them available for attendees today. That I believe we have the first question up about uh, the markets, but we can make sure that the poll questions go up. Take us through what you saw just briefly uh, within your subscribership.
5: Sure, well our subscribers had some interesting results that we didn't expect. Um, They thought that the communication sector was gonna increase the most in 2022, followed by real estate, Um, next consumer discretionary, next healthcare. Um, After that, we saw energy, and then moving on down to consumer staples, information technology, industrials, and then materials. So to, to, to see what the ABI um, attendees think, but that's what our reorg subscribers thought.
3: Looks like uh, the overwhelming amount of attendees think they will increase. I believe there was the question regarding the industries as well. And I'm noticing a few questions coming in on the chat. Um, I, I can't address uh, the one being the fact that ABI is located right outside of DC about uh, the Subchapter 5 uh, debt limits. I know that work is being feverishly worked. They're, they're scrambling uh, within the various committees to try and make that happen. I know work is underway. But uh, within the poll question, I see the expected increases one. So if everybody can go ahead and vote on that, we'll see what the results are. And I also see another uh, question here for the panelists. When do you expect um, Chapter 11s to pick up, would you say, within the year, just guesstimating uh, about, uh, uh, it says a slow burn or a cascade of filings? Slow burn. Slow burn. Okay. Jessica, Ian, any, any thoughts on that?
5: Well, I think, like Ian said, if there there's a big variant that comes through and sort of knocks out the people going out again, that could lead to, I mean, a little, with a little bit of a lag, a more as bigger spike.
4: Sure. Yeah, sure. I think um, I mean, if 2021, you could look at the the filing count as suggesting that maybe we've reached a, a, a level of relative stability. Um, so. There could be a more stable footing for certain of these industries if things were to um, start being problematic, uh, rather than it all being like an explosive, um, you know, giant spike in filings. Maybe something a little bit more, more muted.
3: And the results are in to your poll questions, and just like uh, Josh, you had said, highlight healthcare. It looks like healthcare was the industry where increases were expected.
4: We pulled our uh, legal and financial analysts at Reorg based on basically the same question and the healthcare industry was the most common theme. Um so that's what that's what we're thinking as well.
3: Well, everyone, thank you for your time today. I know that uh, you all have busy practices. I just want to extend a uh, So many thanks to Josh, Ian, Jessica uh, for your perspectives and some additional appreciation to Reorg for sponsoring this webinar uh, for such a great discussion. Uh, So thank you all. For those on the webinar looking to claim CLE credit, please remember to complete the survey that should pop up on your screen when you exit this webinar. Or if you miss it, uh, you will receive a follow-up email. Uh, both the survey and email have instructions on how to claim your CLE credit. Uh, also included in this email you will receive tomorrow is a how to obtain a is a how to of how to uh, get a copy of today's webinar as a recording. Uh, I'd also like to note that uh, many of the issues and trends uh, that we discussed within the various sectors will be on full display in future ABI programming including ABI's annual spring meeting at the end of April uh, in person in Washington, D.C. Uh, ABIASM.org has more information on that. But make sure to visit re for future reports uh, and great analysis that Jessica and Ian provide. And Josh, I'm sure it'll be great uh, keeping in touch with seeing how things are going on at the practice level as well. So, thank you to our all star panel. Thank you for attending this webinar and have a great, well, now on the East Coast afternoon. Thanks, Paul.
4: Bye bye. Thanks, everybody.
3: Thank you.
0: Thank you you again for listening to this Rear Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the rear.com webinars and podcast pages, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend and see you next Friday.